Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Dr. Helen Russ, who is an experienced meditator in the Western esoteric tradition, focusing on experienced-based meditation practices. Helen has used these meditation practices in her career, culminating in a PhD thesis that studies the spirit or consciousness of organizations in an attempt to help them achieve their highest potential. Helen is also an avid environmentalist and ever since growing up on a farm in central New South Wales has always had a close connection with the land. From a young age, Helen also felt a constant thirst for spiritual development. And as you'll hear towards the end of the podcast, these two drives for environmentalism and spiritual growth have led Helen to pose solutions to some of the biggest problems facing humanity today. In the description of this episode, I've included a link to Helen's webpage where you can find more information on her work and her academic publications. And so everyone, thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Helen, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, sorry, I should say Dr. Helen Russ. <laughs> I suppose that's the that's official title, I guess. The official title. Well, that's um, the academic title. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about your your sort of childhood, where you're from, and then and then we can sort of go from there. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I grew up in Warren or out of Warren, about twenty miles towards Gilgandra on a dry land, wheat, sheep and cattle property. We had horses, which was my love. I loved and all our recreation was with the horses. So from days when we had huge amounts of rain and we'd get pulled around by the horses' tails, you know. In the mud. In the mud, (laughs) in the cattle yards. They didn't kick us, you know, they just... I don't know, we love them and I guess they recognise that and we used to have fun with them. And so they'd be brushed and polished for pony club and things like that, which was just fun, you know. And then we had, there was four, four of us, four kids. I was the youngest and I was born into a raging drought, 64, 65 drought. My mum was teaching my brother's correspondence while she was going out in the truck feeding the sheep me in a bassinet, my sister sitting beside and the two boys there as well, and she's she's having them recite their spelling, you know, and you, you just think, my God, 20 miles out of town, we'd go to town once a month. Um, yeah, and I remember dryness and burrs and dust and, and sheep and then wet times when the mosquitoes were like, as big as flies kind of thing, you know, big, big mosquitoes. And if we went out mustering, we'd have to paint the horses and ourselves. You'd wear two shirts so that the sticker of the, in, of the mosquitoes couldn't get through both as if the fabrics were moving. And then every other part of your body would be painted with some kind of repellent. And the horses, we used to put some kind of kerosene mix on them. And if you missed a patch, you'd have it'd be black with the little blood suckers, you know, it'd be just, and the dogs, if you didn't look after the dogs as well, you could find them dead on the chain in the morning. Because the blood suckers had just come and and they just suck the blood out of them. Suck them dry. Yeah. That sounds like a horrifically rugged, barren, (laughs) 
extreme landscape. For flood and fire and famine, yeah, she pays yeah, yeah. us back threefold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was like I feel blessed to have had it. I feel blessed to have had my brothers and sisters, sister and my mum and dad who it was one in, all in. If one of us was hadn't finished their jobs and you went to the house, that was not frowned upon, you know, you'd go and help them. So um, we worked hard, but it made me capable. Yeah. Um, you know. Um, but so. it sounds like in that, in that upbringing, you're very, the, the land and the environment is very prominent in how it shapes your day-to-day psyche. life. Yeah. And your psyche. Yeah. yeah, totally. The vastness in my meditation training you know, for years and continues, the vastness out there is something I love. And and there's this aspect of me that seemed to incarnate for the vastness. It's like that huge open expanse where there's, you know, if you go to the city, it's packed with thoughts. And part of the attraction of the city is the density of people and, and activity. But the the astral environment, the thinking environment in the city is packed and you can ride on it, you can do things with it, but there's something profound, particularly about a dry landscape, a dry landscape that's where the sky is really big mm. and it, where I'm from is flat, so it's you can see forever. and um, You can yeah. just see the vastness of the sky yeah, and the and landscape. You, and you feel it. You feel it. It's in your energy, and your energy is actually shaped by that vastness. But so, and so you had that you had that connection with the land, and then leaving leaving school. Yeah, I went to Sydney after school. Oh, I had a year at home, and then I went to Sydney, and I spent five years in fashion, being a pattern maker designer, and that's where I. I remember the first spiritual book I read, really spiritual book I read, was Shirley MacLaine out on a limb. And it just, it was so, from my background where I'd come from, it was so different, but I was just entranced by it because she was talking about her own journey, her own spiritual journey. And I don't, I'd read about three or four pages a night. That was all I could stomach, kind of all I could take in really. But I remember it really opened up the world to me in a different way. And then there was things like Jonathan Livingston Seagull. So I found that really good. And obviously I had some kind of an urge. I do remember being in Nevertire Pub at, um, <laughs> at about 18 or 19. The Nevertire Pub. Yeah. And someone must have asked me, what do I want? And I said, I wanted to do environmental work at Warren. I wanted a man, a relationship that, that was open all the way down and all the way up, and I wanted enlightenment. Now, for a little girl from Warren whose spiritual life had been church and I'd never had a spiritual experience in church, I, want, I kind of wonder where the hell that was coming from. But I'd always been, I don't know, I, I'd always had a feeling of being a bit different, um, Mm. my consciousness out on the land a lot. And I remember experiences walking through the, the sheep yards at home and seeing like a black energy with coloured lines through it 
and thinking, oh, God, I don't know what this is, you know. <laughs> so there was all kinds of experiences that I had that didn't have a logical explanation and I probably didn't tell anybody about them either because there was no language, there was no discussion, life was about the farm. But there was no context in which to bring that experience into. No. So I just tried to be normal. Right. And so with those three goals, <laughs> yeah. you, you go from your, uh, your fashion job. I thought with the fashion, I thought if I, I, I re- I'd recognise that when women felt beautiful, when they felt they were dressed appropriately, they would shine. And I went into fashion thinking that I could help women shine and kind of realised that it was not quite that. And after about five years in it, I, um, I felt like I was just making money for, I don't know, for people who weren't living an uplifted life, who weren't trying to live an uplifted life. And so I recognised the only other thing I'd wanted to do was environmental work, but everybody had told me I was mad, I'd never get a job, that's why I went into fashion. They said, you know, join the Wilderness Society, you know, have it as a sideline, don't think you'll get employed by it. So at 24, I was bored, disgruntled, kind of what the hell, and... um and I I'd found an environmental course to do by part-time by correspondence. And I, um, I rang my mum that night and, and I sort of vaguely said, oh, I'm thinking I might do this environmental course by correspondence. <laughs> <laughs> and she rang back the next morning and said, if you want to do that, Dad and I will give you a hand. And in two weeks I was at university at Western Sydney and it was Hawkesbury those, day, those days, and I discovered this whole world of people who were doing environmental work with farmers, which is what I wanted to do. And um, I believe farmers were environmentalists, but working with the land, and I felt that we could really do things. And I discovered this. There was lecturers and more senior students and people at my age going in, all different ages, and they were going up in the Hunter Valley working with farmers up there and interviewing people about starting land care groups. It was when land care was just getting going. And I just loved it. I, it's just I took out all stops and I, I remember a guy called Chris Marshall who was at, at Bathurst. We had a bus trip and we, on, in one day this guy took us around the environment and he just opened up the principles of holism and catchment management how the whole thing is in, is interrelated it all works together and i understood it it was like i'd switched on it was amazing and then this work up in the hunter and um it was just it was a really wonderful amazing time it was great <laughs> i felt i'd found my people or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. right so that's so you, you're starting to pursue that that goal. I am. And you're starting to feel like you're starting to feel a little bit more comfortable with yourself. Yep. A little bit more whole. Yep. Yeah. I felt um I felt like I was on track. And I had I had four years. I got a job doing environmental work at Warren, which is what I'd wanted. And I was four years working with the Landcare group. We did a hundred year plan, a community environmental economic plan. 
I was working with heaps of beautiful, wonderful community people who were committed to the same goals. And it was like, what has someone got to offer to give? And, and what would, how would they like to give? And how can we collectively find what is the best in them and, and what they want, where they're wanting to go? And how can 2100 help to achieve its goals by giving them that? So it was like a, how can everyone win? And that was the energy we carried with it. It was great. It was an amazing time. So 2100 was outside uni in yep. the Warren community. Yep. Warren, Changi, Narrowmine. Bringing in sort of the local community, yep. environmental. Goals uh, and, and community goals and, yeah, economic things as well. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you eventually left that. I did. I finished the plan, which was the my job in that. Um I perhaps should go back one bit. I'd worked up in the Hunter Valley after uni and while I was up there, I was having these experiences planting trees and I recognised well, I was running around planting trees everywhere and doing things like that, trying to save the world. And I heard one weekend we'd been out doing things and um, – I heard about two bulldozers clearing some 100,000 acres or whatever in Queensland between with a chain between two bulldozers. And I suddenly had this kind of epiphany that, and later someone would coin the term, but intuitively at that point I understood you cannot solve the problems that we're facing at the level of the problem. And I... At, that's that's how I'd verbalise it now. At the time, I just felt I felt overwhelmed by the enormity of what was happening. That we had different forces working to very different ends, and I had no power to have any impact on what was happening in Queensland. And I remember thinking at that point, it's not going to work trying to fix it on the outside. So just planting trees in, not in the enough. hunter is not going to fix. There's a rot inside. Yeah. That's what I felt at that time. There's a rot inside us, inside us as a whole, inside me as an individual, inside society. And there was some kind of a recognition at that point that I had to go inside um, to to try and solve this. Now with 2100, that was before 2100, with 2100 I tried to do it in a full community way, so using values and principles, but at the end of that I'd tried all my ideas, I'd tested every kind of method I had and I'd really stretched myself beyond my ability, but I'd got to the point where I was, I needed input. It's like I, I didn't have anything left. I needed, I needed to learn again. And that's when I started my, if you like, my spiritual life in, in a much greater way. Um, I'd been doing things up until then. I'd done all sorts of workshops and things like that. But, but it was at that point that I actually started to meditate. And I was involved with the school and I, I just, that was, it's in a Western esoteric tradition. So it's the Christian tradition, but it's more the hidden teachings rather than the overt teachings of the church so it's based on meditation and it's based on experience so gnosticism which is the the stream of the early christians that were based on on learning by experience so 
you start with the third eye, the which the in you Upanishads it's that we they say we have ten gates, nine lead outwards, and one leads in. Well, the third eye, which is between the eyebrows, is the gate that leads within. And there's texts in the I think it's in the Bible that it says. Um, if thy eye be single, thy whole body is full of light. And so it's when you enter consciousness or the inner realms through the, the third eye is the gateway to inner realms. And that's where it started. Um, yeah, and there's a, whole, there's a whole journey of personal and self-transformation that has unfolded through those practices. Um, the, probably the essence of them really is about sourcing consciousness. So it works with the principle that Plato and Steiner and Sri Aurobindo and all kinds of people, I think all traditions in actual fact, suggest that creation is one, there is one whole, Plato calls it the one, and from that one merges a multitude of emanations. So somewhere, you are me, I'm you. you, you're just me in a different form. The table, the microphone, the computer, the breeze outside are all me manifested, emanated in a different form. And so when you source consciousness, when you source whatever it is you want to source, ultimately you can source things back to this one. And that's where in my experience, but also in what these teachers suggest, that's where you find truth. That's where you find unity. That's where you overcome complication. You know, complications is a, a manifestation of when you're very, when, of emanation, when you're very emanated. You'll see that, like we live in duality. That, that's the level of the physical creation we're in is a level of dark and light because to have a, a, a physical journey you have to create existence and being. In the one, you are being, we are all being or beingness. In the Indian tradition, you can call it the absolute. Um, Plato calls it the one. But to actually have a journey in physicality, you need to create existence. So you need separation between, within the beingness. And what we have when we're, when we're incarnated is an experience, an illusion of separation. So I believe I am me and you are you and we aren't the same when we when I operate at this level. But somewhere else we are all one. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say sourcing consciousness, mm -hmm. it's is it recognizing that the the separation that we perceive in our day-to-day -day life actually comes from a, a single source. So sourcing is it's like involuting. It's, it's taking your consciousness within so to finding the source. So an, a kind of emanated experience could be that you, you have a problem, right, like a, um, some struggle you're having in life, you know, let's say money. You, this is one that I've struggled with. So... I tune in to the fact that I hadn't been very good with money, that I seemed to have money, but it would slip through my fingers. 
I tune into that in my body of energy and I might find a, um, a dryness, say, or a lump, maybe in my upper chest, right? And you tune into the feeling of that dryness and it might be, it's like a hard layer. It's like um, it makes, makes me feel dry. It makes me feel vast perhaps. Now, as I keep going inside, further inside, this experience has happened to me is that through sourcing this is I would end up feeling myself as if I'm spread in the land at Barula at my home farm, as, as if there was a layer on top of the earth that was hard, dry, crusty, rigid, crystallised and kind of lifeless. And I felt as if I was suffocating in that layer. And so that's an experience of involution where you actually experience. So in there, I've got to a point where I actually feel like I am part of the land, right? In that experience, I'm, I don't remember if I've gone right back to the source, but I've had other experiences where I feel as if I am I, I say the sun, it's not like the physical sun, but I am the sun and I am everything. I've had experiences. I was in Yosemite National Park once um, and those of you who haven't been there, it's got massive, massive granite cliffs and a flat valley floor with pine trees in it and I felt like I was the granite cliffs, I was the pine trees, I was the river flowing through the cool water, I was the fish in the water, I was the acorns on the trees, I was the bugs eating the acorns, I was literally everything. So when you source, consciousness is way, way, way more mysterious than we, than we recognize with the physical. And when you go inside, you don't know where you're going to go or what's going to happen. But your intention always is to source, to find the source of whatever principle you're working with and to – and truth is probably the other element. It's like they're somehow they're both. And there's like a – so you'll, you'll get to a level where there'll be – an experience like the land, this experience of being in this locked in this layer of hardness at Barula, and you just sit with that feeling. You don't try and fix it. You don't try and change it. You just hold the feeling, hold the pre your presence with the presence of the feeling, with the intention of finding the source. So you, if you do anything active, you might look for the centre of whatever you're feeling or you might look for the root of it, or you might look for what's upholding it, that sort of thing, but you don't actively try and to change it. But what happens with presencing something is that it, it, it seems to me that everything in creation wants to be seen, really seen, and when it's seen, it will return to its own truth. So when you are seen when you're the real essence of jack is seen you'll remember your true nature the true essence of you we're having a physical experience we're here in matter we're getting lost in matter and 
and, you know, getting lost in culture and all kinds of things. It's all part of the journey. It's all the wonder and greatness of the journey. Yeah. But when you are seen and you really remember yourself, it, you remember for a moment, oh, that's why I'm here because you feel it inside yourself. And so this process of sourcing allows you to presence things at their at a more involuted, a more a more internalized space. And it, and it allows you to see yourself like that or to see the principle, like you can see the being in a tree, for example, through the same process. And so with the, like your problems with money mm-hmm. and then you see, you see the land out at Warren, mm-hmm. what's... What changed? There's no, I don't, I don't see any logic between like focusing on that problem of money and... It's often not logical. And the experience there. <laughs> It's often not logical, yeah. but somehow my relationship with money was is to do with my my relationship with life, like with incarnating and not wanting to incarnate because it's all too hard. Yeah, and um, somehow there's something about being game to take on incarnation, like being game to take on life. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's linked with money for me. Like each person has to find their own journey through things. Um, This is probably counterintuitive, but through discovering that layer and doing other land energy work at at home, you can do a practice where you tune into the being of a tree. So you tune into the top of the tree and feel the life force, the thing that you have life in you and the tree has life in, in it. So you like knows like. So you resonate your life with the life in the tree. And then once you've done that for a few minutes, you know, two, three minutes, five minutes, depends on how distracted you are. And then put your awareness down into the root bowl and do the same thing. And once you feel like you've got a sense of where the root bowl goes, then put your awareness through the whole tree above and below. And when I've done that, I've often had the being of the tree pop out and say hello. And I know the spirit of that tree, like a presence. It's, it's like I have a presence beyond my words and beyond what I look like and all that. I have a presence. So does the tree. And it has a life that has the right in its own right, quite separate to me, to live out its life to its greatest potential. It's a life form. It's a, if you take the oneness, it's a part of me expressing itself in a different form. So by identifying with the tree in that way, I treat it completely differently to seeing it as just timber yeah. that I can chop up. Yeah, so it's like reconnecting with, you were saying earlier, like at, at the source of all things, at, yes. at the oneness, we're all together. Yes. And then at the level where we are now and having that experience with the tree, you're like reconnecting with that, that source or that similarity between the two, between you and the tree. Yes. Yes. But just because I was going to answer the other bit in, um, in that experience, something weird happens, right? Where that layer that seems to be cutting off. I've had this experience seeing land care people are running between a floor and a ceiling. So I've had a lot to do with land care through work over the years and it's as if they can't access their birthright. They can't access the 
energy below. And I think this layer is actually a layer like a rape of the land. Like we have come in with our white ways and we've we've done what we wanted. We've superimposed our will on the land and pushed it in the direction that we want it to go. Now, if the land is a living being, anybody who's not seen, it's kind of if somebody comes in and just does what they want to somebody without seeing them, it is like a rape. It's like mm. it's it's and what my sense is is that land had closed off. Right? So in me, I was carrying a closed offness to life in the same way that I was seeing this layer in the land that it had closed off. And so people weren't able to access down through this layer anymore because we'd forgotten collectively, we've forgotten that that's actually what you do. Now having an experience with that tree seemed to pierce this layer. And so over time doing that practice a lot Seem, and, and other ones as well with the land at home seems to have made that harsh layer more permeable. Yeah. It's like so that people who come onto that land can access below more easily. Now, with all this stuff, sometimes maybe it just happened in me, so that's my perception, right? But in line with we are all one, it's my sense that if you do it, it's easier for others, be they land or trees or anything, to do it or other people. And so there's something about just holding my presence in that layer that I described that softens it and opens it and allows it to return to whatever the truth is for it, whatever its, its you know, highest form is. So just in that recognition. Absolutely. With with the tree example, yep. like just seeing the true essence or spirit of the tree, yep. you allow it to come back to its more perfect form. Yeah. Yeah. And so coming back yes. to your, <laughs> I suppose, desire to try and solve some of these problems that like seem to be occurring with, with the land, with these bulldozers ripping out trees. I guess I suppose. Well, sorry, in, instinctively, like meditating is not not going to do anything. Well, I suppose <laughs> most people would say, like, yeah, get out there and yeah, try and stop the bulldozer. Yeah, do like a Bob Brown and I don't know, chain yourself to the bulldozer or something. Um, I think the Greening Australia example made me realise that it didn't matter how much I did, I wasn't actually going to be affecting yeah the forces behind what was happening. I've. And I did have a sense that if I could change it within me, at least that would be one person who was changing it. Um, Sri Aurobindo is an um, a Indian guy who was pretty hugely special in terms of his knowledge. And he has said that there was two guys or two people, I'm not sure if they were guys, meditating that changed the core, the the direction of I'm not sure if it's the first or second world war I need to look up my resources but he also talks about the impact of people meditating like if you really want to change the world change yourself through meditating get in touch with the source 
because if you want to do anything, the easiest place to change it is upstream. And by upstream, you mean at like a higher level? At a more involuted place. A higher level of consciousness. A higher level of consciousness. So um, when I was in Ireland, I was doing research for my PhD on organisations and I saw an article about abuse in mental hospitals of people in mental hospitals. And I'd been cogitating about this, what makes an organisation go dark? Like what, what is it that, that has, you know, organisations generally start with a good, good mission, a, good, a, a nice idealistic idea. And I suddenly had this flash that the reason mental hospitals go dark and abuse their patients, because that was what was happening, is because the essence of the impulse is what I saw is not the right impulse. And, and I had, what, what I saw was that if you consider people with um, mental challenges to be a problem in society, so you're perhaps a social, somebody important in the community and you think, oh, God, we've got, you know, Mary Jo and Tommy B or whatever. Billy Jane. And, and they're causing problems for the society. What am I going to do to fix it? So you take the two or the ten and you put them in a facility where they can't harm anyone or themselves. They are a problem. They're seen as a problem. And you have to put resources, people and things, to looking after them. So those patients are therefore lesser than the people who are looking after them. They're a problem to society so they're not valued by society. And by default, it's much, it's much more likely that abuse could happen in that environment because of the attitude to how those people are seen. To a, an alternative scenario, we've got, you know, Tommy G with funny ability, but you know what? He's really good at maths. And we've got, you know this other girl over there and she's she's amazing at folding paper you know things that perhaps aren't seen as ideal perhaps or perhaps they they are if you're a society where you say what's what's the most we could do now tommy's maths we could use that in our code breaking thing the folding paper we could get her to make origami things for the school kids. Like, if you see people as people, what's the most we can do with what they have? When you look for a solution, you look for a very different solution. And in organisations, in my research, it's called it the lex, the essence of an organisation. Plato calls it the archetype, the archetypal idea is like the living form the perfect form above any organization or within any organization any organization has an essence of something it's trying to do so that's beyond that's an emanation from the primal source yes so there's it's within the source the lex the the archetype exists within the source but it's not emanated at all so every the perfect essence of everything is within the source but to emanate there has to be will behind it so when a founder right so the the town mayor is trying to find a solution to these people 
depending on what's in his or her heart, they go inside and they look for an idea, an essence of something. They actually look for a living form, an archetype from Plato's model. And when they find the idea that matches the essence of their will, what's in, held in their will, they begin, they share the idea with someone and that person gets plugged into the same essence and gradually they share it with more. They start to write things up about it. They, they begin to let the idea reflect into creation. Give it 20 or 30 years and you have perhaps a mental hospital where people are being abused because of the hierarchical structure and perhaps the value system is that these people are a problem so we've just got to lock them away and try and, you know, I don't know, get a, spend as little money as possible because they're just annoyance, right? Or the other model where the people say these are, these are people living out a divine life and what's the most that we collectively could do for each other so everyone wins, everyone benefits? And what the essence of the lex, the essence of the archetype that, you, that the, pers- the founders look for is very dependent on their will, on what's in their heart, what's in their, the essence of themselves. If there's a bit of greed, a bit of grandiose, a bit of arrogance thinking, you know, I'm the great whatever, that will shape what they look for. Right. So, so we've sort of... We've got, we've digressed. Yeah. We sort, <laughs> we've sort of jumped into your, uh, yeah. your PhD and your yeah. research. Yes. Um, which... You asked a question and now I can't remember what the answer, what the question was. Oh, it was probably a meaningless <laughs> question anyway. Um, but when you're doing, when you start looking to solve some of these problems... That was what you were asking. Yeah, but you're doing it through meditation. And meditation at a stereotypical level is a very personal thing. Thing, yep. So this type of meditation I do is is active. It's, it's about sourcing consciousness. So it's about um, ultimately the ultimate state is a state of beingness, so where you actually rest in the source and you are able to retain awareness there. That's the role, the absolute, you know, awesome place yeah. to be. And you will change dramatically just by experiencing that. Which is different because the Western um, esoteric tradition yes. is different to um, those more Eastern traditions. The Western esoteric tradition is about landing your higher ego, which is your, the part of us that's divine, but it's a vehicle to enter creation. So it's um, in, the, in the self, in the, in the beingness of the one, you don't have a vehicle to travel through the d- different levels of emanation. Yeah. The higher ego, it is said by Steiner and various people, is your vehicle to travel through creation. So it's the part of you that is untainted, that can, can enter into creation and shine. Okay. In the Western esoteric tradition, the idea is that you access that, you're aligned with that, and you operate from that at all times. That higher ego. That higher ego. Yeah. Big challenge, but it's a good goal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good... good luck. Yeah, yeah. 
in some of the Eastern traditions, it's more about what they call liberation, yep. which is the design of that is to develop yourself to such an extent that you are released from the wheel of samsaras, the wheel, the wheel of incarnation. So you've got to you, your consciousness has developed to such an extent that you can come back in, come back into creation and have another life if you choose, but you don't have to. Now there's lots of highly developed souls who have said to have achieved that, but they've come back to help for you know compassionate reasons to help their students, whatever they've come back. So um, when you get to the higher levels of spiritual development. My sense is that most traditions dissolve. They're, they're like a scaffolding designed to get you somewhere. And the principles and rules can all be turned on their head. And um, when you get to different levels of consciousness and awareness and there's paradoxes and you hold the paradoxes and it's all fine. Yeah. You know, so. Um, but your question was about overcoming problems and the one of the main things is in sourcing so if you have something like my issue with money is by sourcing you presence the place in your energy where that issue if you like is held and when you presence it it you could think of it when it's a problem it's like a blockage or a lump in your energy that's closed over and no light enters when you presence it, you put your current consciousness through the space of the block and it becomes imbued with your awareness. It opens to your awareness. The horrible experience you had that made you close doesn't disappear, but when, when something comes up to remind you of that experience, you, it, it's like your consciousness just is able to be with and in the space of the block and not react in a mad way. <laughs> yeah. it's It sounds a little bit like psychoanalysis, like personal psychoanalysis. Yeah, but it's done not in the mind. It's done in the body of energy. That's the difference. Right. But it's, it's, it's working towards the source of the problem, which yes. exists in the body of energy rather than... Um, your your traumatized childhood which exists in the mind as well it all Freud exists talk about it's it. all exists in the body of energy but the mind the, the 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 you've got different levels of mind okay when we write a list and we want to go to the shop or you know you've got to actually talk through ordinary mental consciousness it's the lower mind yeah it's the most close to the physical it's the thing that writes lists it remembers to ring your mother you know there's those sort of things. I don't that... think I've got that. <laughs> I think I'm missing this level of mind. <laughs> um, and then we have higher mind states. So the level where we have culture, there's a level of which, you know, Jung talks about it. There's the collective unconscious and the collective conscious and things like that. There's, there's levels of mind where there's culture and then there's levels, higher mind states where you get to know levels of truth and you have a sense of being aligned with higher principles. Um, Plato has got four levels of mind that he talks about like that, and there's a whole lot of people who talk about it in different ways. But if you've got a an issue and you address it from the level of the ordinary mind so you go and talk about it, 
that is one level that's helpful, but after a while, it can be just like going round and round in circle. And like people have, you know, post PTSD, for example, or things, you know, some people have been abused, you know, throughout childhood in various forms. And if you have experiences that happen pre-verbal, what they call pre-verbal, so before you actually can speak, if you're doing an, an analytical approach, it's it's one phase, right, that you need to do. We need If you've never done any analytical work, you've never actually looked at yourself and wondered why am I do, behaving strangely, uh, one level of analytical work will be helpful. But at one point, you need to go into the body and feel where it is held. Things that are pre-verbal, you actually cannot articulate. Yeah. You might you will your mind will shut off the experience because that's what it's trained itself to do because it couldn't cope when it's pre-verbal you know it it something traumatic happens you know a rape for example or or a bashing or things like that being abandoned and the child part of the child may actually leave and so their consciousness part of their spirit leaves and just says, I'm not going to live in this level of creation. And so it could be something like that, or it may be that you just literally completely shut down. And so the child might appear catatonic or it could appear just non-responsive or all sorts of things. And then an adult, as an adult, you might learn to cope and look fairly normal, but until you can go back and presence it and it's the most beautiful experience. You can't imagine how incredible it is when you reclaim a part of yourself that's been locked away. It's like the light comes on in a way, you know, just on multiple levels. Your whole body of energy will feel different. You'll get up from the session and you will just see the world anew. You know, so um, that's solving it on the inside for yourself. And in my experience, when you solve it yourself, it stops. I don't know. There's something totally weird that happens, but it no, it's no longer a problem in the world in your in a way. Mm. It's like you've got to once you've seen it and really owned the aspect in yourself. There's one sure sign that you've got an issue <laughs> is if you're blaming somebody. Yeah. Any kind of blame. So he did this to me, she did that to me, the politicians are doing this wrong, they're not listening. And I can hear people screaming all, all over saying, what? But my experience says if you're blaming somebody, look inside yourself and ask, where do I do the same thing? Where? Where do I do it? And when you can find that place and open that place and bring love to that place, whatever so-and-so is doing won't bother you anymore in, in, in the same way or it won't bother you in a samskaric, wounded way. You'll, you'll open to it and you may even have a solution because in your own opening you'll find the solution. Is it somewhat... I suppose to go into those sort of um, those parts of yourself could be tr quite traumatic. Like you have to sort of face 
the like the dark places of yourself. Yeah, you do. That's exciting though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be a Pollyanna. Like seriously, you've got no grunt if you Yeah, if you can't handle that. Well, Look, the, the hard things to face are really hard because we've programmed ourselves to avoid them. We, we, we try and whenever they come up, we kind of deflect it, shut it off, push it away and try and get on with what's easy. And so you, you're, you're doing these sort of practices with yourself. And, and with others, with this, others. Yeah. Mm. And it's, but at this stage, it sounds like it's about your personal development, sorting your own shit out Yep. So it's about sorting my own shit out, but you've also, I've also with the with what we call mapping consciousness. So there's, it's also about putting vision on whatever you want to, like organisations or the land, and see what's happening in other things. But um, I'll just the mapping consciousness is when two people go in in a space together so they involute their consciousness together and they decide what they're going to put their vision on right so it could be and by vision do you mean like their awareness yes yeah. their awareness their inner you know their mind's eye if you like um so through development through meditation techniques you can develop subtle structures in your body of energy that we all have as a potentiality but they're a bit like a muscle that's never used if you don't do any work on them. So one's the third eye, um, but there's a whole range of structures. And one which, from my understanding, we all have is a column of spirit, which is a if you think of a line of energy going from the top of your head up vertically to infinity and the bottom of your body all the way down to infinity the other way, that's your column of spirit in in life it's it's the place where your spirit resides your body is a vehicle your spirit is not limited to your vehicle and it can travel up and down the, the column of spirit at will if you've trained it and so it's a bit like um you know you can be aware of your foot or your hand without looking at it because it's something that you, your consciousness is identified with and you use it and you know how to move it and things like that. Column of spirit's the same. By It's just it's not physical. So I can, I'm right now, I'm aware of my column of spirit and I'm aware uh, it goes very high, for example, it goes low, and I'm just putting a touch of awareness while I'm chatting to you on my column of spirit. So when you want to do a practice, you want to put vision on something, you align your column of spirit as your organ of perception it's like an organ of perception that's been developed and it's i like a sixth sense yeah like a sixth sense um it feels like a structure you know if i'm not if i'm sitting vertically it feels better than if i'm slouched right for example and so better sit up straight <laughs> <laughs> um and when, so when you do when you map, you align your column of spirit with, let's say it's an organisation, for example, with the spirit of the organisation, and it's a tactile thing. So you, it's as if the column, the organisation had its, has its own column of spirit. And this is and this is your like research. Your research goes research. into this spirit of organisations. Yes, looking at how how organisations can remain aligned in harmony efficient and integrity 
the the best organization that they, that can, they can be. be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in mapping, so whether it be something inside myself or an organization or a tree or a land being or anything you want to map, you know, you use your column of spirit as an organ of perception. You align your column of spirit with whatever you're wanting to look at and you feel its qualities. So it's a tactile, experiential, sensational experience. So does the spirit of that organization feel heavy or light does it feel open or closed does it feel dense or diffuse so you use very tactile things the same with the presence of a tree how does the tree feel does it feel dark or light open or closed and if you're practicing this for example by the time you've tuned in so you tune into the first tree you've ever done you'll go i can't feel anything i don't know what does it feel like i don't know but then if you do it for a few minutes and then you move to another tree and then you move to another tree and you start to compare, you'll get a sense. Ah, oh, that tree's sicker or that tree's more joy. That one's sadder. That one's more male. That one's more female. You know, you have there's all sorts of perceptions you get, and it's a and it's a very simple um, process. And by reflecting, by have some having somebody else do it with you, it's um it's like they see other things, and their reflection makes you see other things, and then your reflection makes them see other things. It's like there's some kind of mirroring thing goes on that's really really powerful. You also ask for help you know, whatever spiritual forces you're working with, you ask them to help. And sometimes you can have the experience where you look through the eyes of a, of a high being, like Lord Ganesh, for example, in the Indian tradition is one that people often call on. And you can sometimes have an experience where you actually see whatever you're looking at through the eyes of Ganesh. And that's like... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's got a completely different view than our little human view of whatever's going on. So that's very cool. Yeah, you get to use his six <laughs> arms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Your top of his helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're going into, like, you, you're taking this idea of um, meditation to sort out individual problems and then taking yep. that into an organisation. Yes. Relying on these ideas of the Western esoteric tradition yeah um and sort of to get to the end of that like you you do your phd you yep. write a couple of academic papers yeah and i was reading like one of your academic papers and i've never read a paper yeah that's quoting steiner and sri aurobindo and plato and like yogananda it's it's this very it's it's a world that doesn't seem at least to me to have a place in academia because you're sort of dealing with ideas that are almost incomprehensible to academics because academics are in their mind that's the, like not all academics there's lots of good academics as well but the 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 um the sort of the rigorous process of academia 
is particularly in this space is in the mind and to understand this you've as in the ordinary mind what I was describing as the ordinary mind and to understand other levels of life you have to get out of the ordinary mind and yeah. that's the challenge and there is more and more and more work happening in this space as in more and more people quoting people like I've been quoting in um, particularly in America there's the Institute of Noetic Sciences, for example, there's lots of different um, organisations where people are using the academic process to uncover and share. I know of one person at the moment who's doing birth, death and womb spaces, in a PhD in birth, death and womb spaces. Um, so... Uh, that are exploring new realms or no, they're not new realms they're old realms they're realms that we've played in forever but they're not realms that the sort of materialistic um approach to life has embraced because they're but beyond the material material is an emanation yeah according to steiner everything is light, condensed light. So the table is condensed light. The chair, you, me, just oscillating. Some people talk about it oscillating at different rates. And my experience suggests that because when I source things, that's what I find. I find light yeah. beyond, beyond, the, beyond the manifestation of the material. And if you want to alter something, if you can, if you can alter it, if you can find its source, you can alter what flows downstream, what, what emanates. And that's sort of how you're trying to address the problems. Yes. It's like find the source, hold presence, hold witness, speak, see the source, let the thing return to its true nature. Yeah. In, Do you want to give us an example from your, okay. yeah, your sure. research? <laughs> so. I worked with a site organisation in America which had been working with um, doing what like Fred Hollows does is cataract surgery in India and Nepal. They'd started from the impulse of a guru and there were a bunch of crazy wild hippies, nurses, Buddhist nun, medical doctor, clown. So quite an eclectic group. Quite an eclectic group, yeah. And they started doing... Um, they decided they had. They met an Indian guy called Doctor V, Doctor Venkaswamy, who was Doctor um, V. Yeah, they call him because <laughs> his name is too hard to say. And he was a devotee of Sri Aurobindo and the Mother. And he was he'd started a hospital in his home in in Aravind. He called it Aravind after Aurobindo, um, and. He decided he wanted to make eye surgery um, like McDonald's and all his American friends were going, what the hell does he want about McDonald's? But, but in McDonald's you're supposed to get the same good hamburger every time and they've perfected an incredible system where I'll just, uh, I can tell you a big story about this but, but I'll try and keep it to the minimal the United Kingdom, I think it was in something like 99, the United Kingdom spent $500,000 on 
on, um, sorry, did 500,000 eye surgeries. Aravind did 300,000. Aravind did it on 1% of the budget. And it's because the whole system was set up of a principle of service, right? So this bunch of hippies from California decided that's who they were going to support. But they said, we've got to do something at home. And they felt the issue with Native American diabetes was something they would like to work on. So they started to do that. And the organisation, had, when I met them, had been established for 30 years and they'd been doing site all over the world and diabetes at home. And when I interviewed people in the organisation, because part of the appraisal process with um, getting to know the spirit of a group is to do, in, do interviews as well as mapping. And um, so when I did the interviews, the staff were all telling me, there's an internal schism. We don't know if we're sight or diabetes. There's always this fight between the two sides. When we mapped the spirit of the organisation, we saw there were four pillars. And by mapping, you mean sort of uh, aligning your consciousness with theirs? Yeah, yeah. so... There was either two or three of us in, in, different, in different times and we would in, go into meditation, internalize, shut our eyes, internalise our consciousness. Someone would record, there'd be someone recording. What would they be recording? Video? No, no, audio, just or, audio. Or, or writing notes right. about what was seen. And um, some, some I've recorded. But um, we'd, go, we'd go inside. This would take an hour, an hour and a half or so. And you, we'd all align our consciousness with the spirit of the organisation and wait to see what would be revealed. And you would see all sorts of things, different levels. You'd see up to the purity of the essence of the spirit of the organisation, which is like a living a living form. So whenever you experience that, there was this sense of joy and lightness and, I, and, and we can cope with anything. The world's our oyster and we can do it whatever the essence of it is. And then other times you'd be in layers of bureaucracy, you know, where there was dysfunction and things happening. But the thing about this organisation that was interesting is there was these four pillars that were coming down from the Lex, from the archetypal realms, into the more emanated operational kind of level. So we're talking the inner workings of the spirit of the organisation. And one of those pillars was full of static. And... We weren't, my mission wasn't to do anything with this. It was just to see what was happening because to see how this worked, to see what we could see. And so I reported back to the organisation. I, you know, shared with them the interviews. I shared with them the, the results of the mapping. And um, we did some workshops looking at the spirit of the organisation as well, which the, pe- the organisation members participated in. And um, they'd have these kind of aha moments at what their organisation was. And so the next board meeting, which I wasn't there, I was back in Australia, the, um, the board met and after 30 years of operation, they changed their mission from sight and diabetes to sight all around the world and sight with Native American people. And so this internal schism was resolved in one decision. I didn't do anything to that decision. I was not involved. I didn't even know. I mean, I would have known the board was meeting, but that was not. But 
what that's what happens is when you really see, like it's really funny when you see the spirit of an organization because they they look at you and go, oh, she can see me like this. You know, you can you can hear and and then they're like, oh, well, what's she going to see, you know? And there's this real sense that it, it's the same as us. Is you know, when someone really sees you, you can cry yeah. because, oh, my God, I've been seen. And it's the same with an organisation. That's what happens when you when you see the spirit of a group. It 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 somehow comes alive. It starts. There's a communication. So if you can give, which is part of my research, is you give a language and the structure. You map the spirit of the group over a few sessions, not just one. You do a whole series of sessions so that you get a good sense of it. You share the results with the organisation. You give people some workshop type experiential um, practices where they get to see the spirit of their organization in action and with all that the relationship between the spirit of the group and the people and the individuals in the group opens and you have a very different beast if you like a very different energy and that's that's sort of it's like people will start to say oh no that's not aligned with Alex or that's going to create complications that doesn't it's it's like people start to we've so with this it's not there's not anything that people haven't been doing for centuries right we've got corporate wizards revolutionaries you know leaders teachers business owners everyone operates at this level already not everyone sorry but a lot of us operate at this level already the only difference is is the only difference is is that i'm making it overt so i'm bringing a language so that we can communicate about it on this level here and i'm bringing a language so that people can actively and consciously relate if you want a job for an organization, don't ask the CEO, ask the spirit of the organization. And if you're in an organization and you don't fit with the spirit, don't waste your time. Go. You won't work. It won't work. It's like you are a presence. I am a presence. The spirit of a group is a presence. Find a way, find an organization that your spirit fits in. We've all, like lots of people, if you, you know, over your life, you'll say to people who they have a time with an organization that the organization love them and they love the organization and it's just this marriage made in heaven. Yeah, yeah. That's when the spirit of each is aligned. And so for, <laughs> for like the average punter, yep. that would just be like, it, it doesn't feel right. When I go to work, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, it's like you're a square peg in a round hole. It, I just, Nothing I'm, seems to work. Yeah, yeah. People don't like you. They don't like your ideas. Or you keep getting blocked or stopped or something. And, you know, it might be a particular person that you see as the problem. Um, if you're doing the work, go inside and find what that person is reflecting in you. If you can actually open whatever it is reflecting in you, you might find the person that you perceive is the problem suddenly becomes your friend. Yep. But it's that's changing yourself. That's, you know, it depends. You've got to decide which which action, which pathway you're going to take. Yeah. Yeah. To, to tell like someone that you're communicating with the 
spirit of an organization sounds pretty out there, right? out there, pretty wacky. Mm-hmm. But it is um, your your research takes its theory all the way back to as you've been saying, Plato. Yeah, and and he is sort of seen as like the father of. Um, yeah, like, they think the rest of the Western academic tradition is a footnote to Plato. Yeah, people say that. Yeah, and yeah. so there's like a there's like a good acknowledged corpus of theory around what you're doing. Yeah, and um, in in the Republic, there's uh, the Allegory of the Cave. Yes, which is in Book Seven. I can't remember which book, but it's in the Republic. Yep. Yeah. Do you do you want to talk, talk to through? that? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. It's like in the in the allegory of the cave. So you've got people chained to a wall, and there's a fire, and they they're chained in such a way that they can't move their head, and there's a fire behind them, and so their whole life is spent looking at this wall, and as people walk past the fire, they see the shadows of the people superimposed on the wall, and they believe those shadows are life. So the idea of Plato's is that what we see in the physical is a downstream emanation of something that is more real that's upstream at a more involuted level. The, the Greeks had a, had a term they called noose or noetic knowledge, and it's, it's what, we th- what we talk about as thinking is the ordinary mind what the what plato was talking about when he talks about noetic thinking is aligning aligning your effectively your column of spirit with the essence of the other thing it's like operating at a higher level so it's operating at the level of archetypes mm. if you like operating at a level where Things are true before they emanate. Because like, Plato talks about the philosopher kings. Yeah. Um, I suppose coming back to the... The philosophers are the king in Plato's time. They're the meditators. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah which is like the... Um... They're the, the yogis or the sages of our time, the people who do serious spiritual work and, and get to the truth of things beyond appearances and... He suggests they should be the people ruling the world, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But what you're what you're doing, I suppose, is trying to bring that idea of the philosopher kings looking after a uh, looking after a society, and I suppose the republic's also about like the individual and like what is just and what's right inside the individual's own corpus. Yeah. And then yours bringing those two sort of extremes of the individual and the state into sort of a medium I guess, context of the organisation. Yeah. What I feel like is that we've had thousands of years of teachers teaching us about the I am, you know. Um, Christ, my understanding of Christ in the sort of from Steiner and lots of people is that he was bringing our ability to connect with our individual I am. He was helping us do that. That was he was bringing the light, showing the way. Yeah. Well, I am the way, the truth, and the line. Yeah. 
what we haven't done on from a spiritual level that I'm aware of, although I imagine there's other people around the world who are discovering the same things as I am, I just haven't found them yet, is that we haven't actually done the same for the we are, right? We've looked at, we've looked inside the heart of an individual. We haven't looked at spiritually, right? We've done the psychological thing where, you know, um, one of those, you know, the classic psychological sayings are when you do this, I feel this. If you continue, I'm afraid you'll do that. It's like a psychological level of improved personal development, right? So we've done lots of work on that. We've done lots of work on that in organizations. Organizational psychology and behavior and things like that is about that level, right? The the level where we realize that teams are helpful and that effective teams work by doing it this way at a psychological kind of level. What we haven't done is looked at the spirit of the team, the spirit of the group, and started to operate. It's a different cosmological level, right? So it's going to to a different level. And my feeling is we've got a situation at the moment on the world where, well, groups run everything, be it multinationals, so millions, of hundreds of thousands of people participating in Google, for example, or be it the local community group, this local sports club, the church, groups run just about everything. Sure, they're made up of individuals, but we desperately need a technology and a language to work with the spirit of groups because if we, like as an individual, if I can clean up myself individually, I will become more like a light in the world, you know, the more I can do, the more I will become like that, hopefully. That's the plan anyway. <laughs> um, my teachers used to say, um, we can't know if any of this is true until you, after you're dead. And I maintain that with a good degree of you know, humility. <laughs> However, we're trying. <laughs> I've also got the my neighbour who was a really good Catholic when I was growing up, a beautiful gentleman, and he used to say, I'd rather go through life believing there was a God and find out at the end that it, there wasn't than go through life believing there wasn't and find out at the end there was. And I, so I've kind of yeah. – I have. It's I, like Pascal's wager. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Okay, yeah. yeah. It's uh, like I'm going to bet on God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to bet that this creation is made of something way more wonderful than me, you know. Mm. Like you cannot have the – incredible life of a brolga lifting off at sunset or and then experiences where you all are and now I've lost with the train where I was going where was I going you're talking about the importance of um looking into the spirit of organizations how we've done the individual oh yeah we've done the individual uh, no I mean we're not done with the individual it's an ongoing journey we're all here trying to do it but my feeling is with we've got fires raging we've got groups of people trying to solve save us from that we've got politicians doing x y and z we've got polluted oceans we've got fracking destroying water tables we've got drought possibly caused by the removal of timber you know trees we've you know we know trees bring rain and 
and we've cleared them in the last 150 years like there's no tomorrow. And my sense is that if each organisation was connected to its source, to its truth, and the people involved in the organisation were able to actively participate in keeping it aligned, that we could solve collectively. The human heart is the most beautiful, most incredible organ thing in creation that I know. And give it a chance to shine individually or in groups. And I think the, the challenges we face now I'm not saying we wouldn't have them, but they would be vastly different. And I feel this piece of knowledge with Lexian, it actually came to me in a dream. I'd been looking for the, a word to describe this phenomena, my whole PhD, and it was not till after the PhD was written that I, that I had a dream. I had bits of paper all around my office with words like collective, astral, you know, all sorts of crazy things. And... Um, and, I, and I woke in the middle of the night and I used to write things on bits of paper if I woke up and I woke in the morning and I'd completely forgotten the dream and then I looked down and I went, Lexian, oh, oh, that's right, I had a dream. And I saw literally a kind of a ladder that beings that gave me the word. So I don't actually feel like it's mine. It's, it's come from somewhere else. But when I started to look up what it meant, so lex in Latin means law, L-O-R-E, L-A-W, law, L-A-W, and dharma, the way. And lex in ancient Greek means the word, as in the beginning was the word. And if you go and look for the essence of something, if you find an archetype, it's like it holds the structure, the perfect form, what Plato says, the perfect form of the thing in its essence. It's all there. So when you find the lex, be it of the mental hospital, the perfect lex, it holds the structure that will then emanate down through the levels of creation and become an organisation with a lovely mission and people working towards it. And it depends how cleanly the people who begin to emanate it are in their heart is how cleanly the essence of the organization will will incarnate and so is the lexian holding the lex or is it the no the lex exists regardless yeah when you or i come up with the idea say let's say i come up with the idea and i pass it to you i don't pass you a package i introduce you to the space of consciousness where I'm drawing from. And by doing that, you then feel the alive form, the alive dynamic thing in your psyche. And then you start to take action aligned with that life, with that feeling of life. And so let's say then you and I introduce it to another person and another, and another, and each of those people start aligning with the Lex, that the Lexian is what they create whenever they're aligned with the Lex. It's like they create, the original founders create kind of like a grail vessel that 
lets the lex reflect, the light of the lex reflect into a more emanated level. That's kind of like what I call the heart of the organization, the lexion. And then downstream is what's what culture emanates from, which is all the patterns and pathways and no, 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 we're going to do it this way. And, and oh, okay, yeah, that's good. Well, what about this system here? And what about we dress like this and, you know, we'll do this and we'll do that. So all that sort of more emanated stuff is the elexion. So it's the emanated lexion. We relate to that. The most closely we relate to that is culture. Right. So organize, when, you, when you feel that McDonald's feels different to Burger King yeah. or you say, I don't like McDonald's or I don't like Burger King or I do, what you're actually relating to mostly there is is the culture. It's the feeling, the spirit of the culture. And it's through sourcing that, when you source that up, you find the Lex, the Lexian and the Lex. And so that enables you to like tap into what the culture is, thereby what the, the Lexion, the, the spirit is, yeah. and then it's, perfect archetype it's form. perfect form it's perfect archetype like uh, when i was doing my research there was an organization um that had started when the cooperatives in ireland had started yeah and the feeling of life in this cooperative it was like a time when people didn't have much power and they discovered the essence of sort of collectiveness you know, they were dairy farmers, you know, and they, they discovered the essence of of the strength and power and camaraderie and, and things that came through being in a collective. And when you source the essence of it, it was like this most gorgeous gold fluid life feeling of being together, of togetherness. There was a, another organisation I did which was doing peace and reconciliation from the north and south of Ireland and, um, and, and the feeling in that was that the, in, the, in the true essence of it, it was like embodying the feeling that we can have peace and diversity together. The two aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. So each one, everything, everything I've ever mapped has, has an essence. Yeah. You know? And do you ever find that that essence is um, like bad or <laughs> evil? Or... So evil is truth with just a little erring, right? So in my experience, I don't know who said that, I can't remember, but I kind of like it as a quote. It feels like it resonates with me. So in my experience, at the state of oneness, everything is light. Everything, every archetype is beautiful and magnificent and filled with joy and enthusiasm and just the most incredible magic, right? But as we emanate, we are in the level of duality where we've got dark and light. The archetypes are beyond duality. So there is no darkness in the one. Yeah. There, at archetype, that's my understanding of things, is there's no darkness at the archetypal level. The darkness comes in when we start operating within duality, which is the which is a level where consciousness exists as, as we, well, there are levels of consciousness above the duality, but we are in duality and the reason we can have a life here and you can be over there and I'm here is because we're in duality and you've got ex- being and existence, you've got separation. And I can have an identity that says this is me. 
and that's you. Yeah. Yeah. So my sense is when there's darkness in organisations or in people, it's when they're disconnected from their source. That's just the simple, simple truth. Yeah. One thing in the, the in these sort of traditions where there's reincarnation and cycles is like what what's the ultimate end goal? Yeah, I think I think that if I could remain connected to the love, the feeling of love, if I could be um, a force of love all the time and not get lost in blaming <laughs> and um, and you know anger or resentment or things like that, but. I don't know. I, maybe, I mean, part of it is the joy of this whole thing is getting into it, getting into the mess. Just having a crack. Yeah, having a crack. Yeah. Seeing what you can do. Yeah. It's because like there's not move that- all the levers, you know, get 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 in the, the vehicle, whatever it is, and crank every lever, make it work, see yeah. what you can do. See what happens. Yeah, and yeah. you'll make a mess. I've had times when, like I did one thing where I tried to do something with a with the essence of an existing building and I felt like I did some wobble or something. There was something not good with what I did and I, and I had all these beings around me going, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so sometimes you can do things you shouldn't. Yeah. But. So you, there you're working on a, on a building. An existing building that I, I was trying to, I was wondering if it was possible to clean up the essence of a building that was already existing. <laughs> Because it, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but there, uh, there, you like that's that's beyond an organization. That that's yeah, really yeah. dealing with physical a, matter, a place. Yeah, yeah, and I shouldn't have done it. You know, like it's like, but I learnt, and part of my training is um, push the boundaries, see what you can do. You know, yeah. I, because of it, I've seen all sorts of things. Like I've seen energy lines across the country where. I, I think what I've seen are the lines like that head through Chartres Cathedral. You know, they talk about the oh, ley like lines. the Rose Line and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. I don't actually know, yeah. right? So these are like the lines in like across Europe yes. where certain churches are built. Exactly. And they think that – I don't really know enough about it, but there's a there's – a, like a spiritual line that they're like Earth through. meridians. Yeah, I think if you've read or seen the Da Vinci Code, right? That's ultimately how. That's one of the clues that Tom Hanks comes across. Is it? Yeah. And how he ultimately finds there's that like final scene in the movie where he's like chasing the rose line, and right. then he comes across Mary Magdalene in front of the loop. It's a classic scene. Is it? I haven't actually seen. I have to watch it. Uh, yeah. I've read some of the book, but it was a while ago, and I probably can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, that's it in popular culture. Yeah, yeah, no, well, that's good. That's it. So I had an experience at it um, The first, well, there's one of these running through the haystack at my home farm, which I found when I was a kid and I used to go and sit in it when I I didn't know it was there. I just used to go and sit in the haystack when I was, I don't know, wanted to be quiet or something. And I was doing a meditation practice in Sydney and, there was somebody who'd done a lot of work in land energy type stuff and she must have recognised something was going on or whatever and she said, what are you seeing? And I said, oh, I'm sitting in the haystack and there's stock going off down the paddock, you know, horses or something and it's in the e- evening and um, and I said, oh, there's something out to the south. 
And she said, yeah, what's that? I said, I don't know. And I could feel this energy moving through me. And I found another one out at Whitecliffs when we were out there and I used to go and sit between two trees and I kept, for some reason, I kept coming back to these two trees and I'm like, what am I to see you? What am I doing here? And then I felt I was waiting for, like I was waiting for my lover and it was like a lover from the future and a lover from the, from the past and the future. And it was travelling at a fast rate, like a fast walking pace from west to east and it was like a barrel and when I stepped into it, it was like the circle of life was whole and I was a child of the creation and everything was in order as it should be and when I stepped out, I felt like a teenager, a homeless teenager in the Sydney train station. You know, it was like fractured and trauma and disconnected. And I could step in and out of it within about a foot. And my, I wondered if that's how Aboriginal people could walk from the top of Australia to the bottom and know where they were going because it was quite clear. I was in a deep, I'd, I'd been meditating and I was in a meditation kind of space when I saw it. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure why I started to tell you that. And we were talking about uh, the buildings and doing work with space or place. Buildings are amazing. When I was working for the Peace and Reconciliation Organisation in Ireland, the building had a long history. It had been built by the Irish uprisings to, to quell the Irish uprisings and then it had become, it was a couple of hundred years old, and then it had become a, um, a home for troubled children. And when I interviewed the staff, they were, well, when I first started mapping it, my first experience was, my God, I feel like a child in stone. So I started feeling the qualities of the building and I felt like I was going to be beaten. That was my first experience when we started the mapping process. In addition to that, the um, staff all kept saying to us, I feel like an abused child. I feel like I'm... Um, Oh, I don't know, there was all sorts of things. There was all kind of funny energies in this place. There was um, victimised, um, everyone's bullying, you know, this sort of stuff. Now, the organisation was a beautiful organisation and has done incredible work, but, the st but this is what the staff were telling me. And what we saw was that the energies in the building were affecting the staff. There was all kinds of imprints from the previous inhabitants that had been in the building that hadn't been properly cleaned up and they were affecting the, the headspace of the current staff. It wasn't what I was intending on telling you, but it doesn't, it's okay. It's just the things about place are incredible. If you, every organisation and every individual is located in a place at any, any given time, organisations begin in a place. And often if the people were in a different place, the organisation wouldn't have begun because it's something to do with the relationship with the subtle energies of place. So the land beings, the beings in the trees, the beings in the streams, the beings in the water, or maybe a bigger being, the whole being of the valley, that, that has an impact on the psyche of people 
in a way that is intuitive. It's just subtly sensed and it enables or disenables all kind of action. That, that organisation, the Peace and Reconciliation Impulse, had come because it was in a valley where there was this incredibly beautiful divine feminine energy. So the whole valley was this divine feminine. And there was something about that divine feminine aspect that was like a cradle for the Peace and Reconciliation. And all the staff told me things like, the, the peace and reconciliation can happen here. So they would bring the victims and the perpetrators of violence. So, so someone's family had been killed in the uprisings. They would bring the remaining family and the people who'd done the killing together into one room to, to, bring, to bring healing. And it was the most amazing process to hear about. I didn't actually see a process, but what I did see is that the being – the peace and reconciliation being would open like a coliseum of light for the healing process. And it would feel like, so the people would enter the space and they would feel as if, oh yeah, I can try and heal here today. I can, I will, I'm going to participate in this because of this, the subtle feminine, the relationship with this incredibly beautiful part of the world, like gorgeous streams and hills and valleys and things. So there's a physical nature of it, but it was the subtle nature of it as well, interacting with this peace and reconciliation being that enabled the work to happen. So if you were going to do that without sort of any real training, without sort of much of an understanding if you were to just sort of meditate on the problem. Inside yourself. Inside yourself. Would that be a good place to start? It would be a good place to start, but my sense is that so I, it's like I would try tell people to try it, right, see what they can do. and But my sense is with or my experience is, sorry, with this stuff, doing it on your own, you can only go so far there's something about reflection that is unbelievably powerful in sourcing. So it's like you find a person who knows how to do it or will do it with you or whatever. Um, you have to train your consciousness to look for truth. We are trained to follow often lower mode pathways, the easy way or the pathway we've ever gone, we've always gone. And the reason why reflection works is because the other person can reflect back to you what they're seeing. Now, if you're not trained, you might end up abusing them and telling them they're wrong, Yeah. right, because you're invested in retaining the beliefs that you have about the world kind of thing. There has to be will yeah. there. or To confront the, the issues. Well, yeah, to like I, I'm sick of this, you know. And sometimes you're not sick of it. You like it. Yeah, There's yeah. benefits in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Mm. So through your research, it sounds like you started to come back to um, that environmental aspect that you had started off on. Yeah, I I have. When I um, when I was overseas, I had this experience where I kept. I didn't notice it at first, but I kept having an experience where this group of Aboriginal women from home 
would be in my meditation space. And um, one day someone said, what's that? And I just went, oh, that's the women from home. Like they'd been with me all along, but I'd never consciously recognized them. So I started to do more practices on them. And when I came back to Australia, I went home and I, and I, I knew where they were because I could feel it in the energetic space. And I went to the spot and I remember standing on the spot and I started having images of land energies in Ireland, which are very different in the way they manifest or the way I perceived them. And, um, and I said to my friend, I've got images of Ireland happening and the woman who the Aboriginal woman that I see is the MC of this. So they're non-physical, they're energetic, and they seem to be holding a particular nodal space. Yeah. So there. you're in. Where were you in the UK? Uh, no, this is when I was. I was in in, in Ireland. Ireland and San Francisco when I first perceived them, like or started to perceive them consciously. Yeah. And I came back to Australia and I went to the actual physical location of where they were on my home farm, about yeah. 300 meters from the house where yeah. I grew up. The physical location being the land, but they're not physically there. No, you can't see anything. It's the spirit of them. Yes. Yep. You can't see anything physically. It just looks like the edge of the creek. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look like anything. Anyway, so I'm tuning into the spirit of them. And the, the one that I consider as sort of like the MC, the master of ceremonies, or she's the main one for me anyway, she was, she's just, she doesn't look, she mostly anyway, doesn't look at me. She just smiled, started smiling when I said that I had was seeing these land energies from Ireland and then suddenly it dawned on me and I, I you know, I nearly cried because it was like I'd gone all around the world looking for what was right here. Yeah. Like they'd been with me my whole life and they'd been supporting me and energetically holding me and um, helping me, you know. I, I've since had experiences where they um, – they helped me incarnate like I didn't want to incarnate. And they said, no, come on, it'll be fun, you know, and um, all sorts of things. And I've since found like, as, oh, I've, I found a men's site, I found a community site, I found a heart node um, at, at all within the cooey of this spot. Um, my brother and I went and he, he explored the male node. I didn't go there, you know, the male place. But um, – the heart node had the feeling that if I could align my heart with this node that was in the ground, I would know how to manage this piece of land. It was, it was like an energetic node. And so all kinds of things. They would take me down and I'd see this emerald green, this full-on life, you know, below this hard layer. There was this life in the land. And... um that, that notion I had that I explained that I'd seen lots of people in land care running between a floor and a ceiling. Yeah. Somehow through doing this work with the land energies, I'd accessed below. I feel like I felt like I'd gained access to my birthright, like as a member of the human hierarchy born on planet Earth in communion, in as in there's experiences where I feel like I am the Earth. I am the earth and I feel like I'd gained access to that part of myself, if you like, through these women. And yeah. I just love them. I found a whole there's I found them at similar things at lots of other sites. And my the 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 land system that runs 
that my home property is on seems to be between the Macquarie and the Castlereagh rivers in New South Wales. I'm not sure how far it runs, but my sense is that if the living people, and it's not about what colour you are, but if the living people have a conscious relationship with these nodes because they are all over, the whole network will come alive. And that would be something magical. That would be that would change the nature of the land out there unbelievably. So with the women, did you see them as like a a guardian angels? Is- yeah, probably <clears throat> kind of. They're like, they're, they hold a particular location, a particular place. They hold a particular energy at a particular place and that is special. Like that is a powerful thing. Um, I was doing practices here after Christmas with the fires and I had a choice to go meditating in an intensive where my friends would be or um, or stay here and I kept getting the feeling that I am strategically located. There is something about me being here now and we were, I can't tell you exactly what that was, right? I don't know still but it was in that phase when the fires were um, full on, when there was burning and smoke every, like w- w- there was no burning right here where I am, but there was smoke in the air. You would go out. The whole space had an Armageddon feeling, a weird vibe. Yeah, and, these, these are the massive bushfires that have yeah, occurred over Queensland, yeah. New South Wales, Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, and it was, so it's Christmas 2019, just the Christmas just passed. And we were sitting doing practices and I was wondering if we could do anything to help because it just looked bad. And I had one feeling that we could maybe lift up the smoke. We couldn't get rid of the physical smoke, but maybe the toxicity of the smoke. I then tuned into the fires themselves, the, at that point the Mount Gospers fire was raging out of control and the whole Blue Mountains were blocked and things. And I got a really strong, no, like this. It was really strong. And I went, okay. Is that because you were trying to? I like, was wondering, you know, it was a question in the yeah, space. Can, like, can we do anything to help? Yeah. And it was really a clear no, as in the fires are doing something. So and the fire was telling you. No, stay off. out of it. Yeah. Stay out of it. And what my sense was then is there was a big black energy that was to the northeast of Mount Gospers that the fires were using the mount, the tunnel of the mountain, somehow the, en- the physical tunnel of the mountain to draw the energy up and out. And so... So we just looked, we just were present, and then for some reason, I don't know why this happened still, but we were seeing individual CEOs. Often when you look at the landscape of business, it's a big landscape, and we were seeing individual CEOs, and there was this feeling in the space of it's about, I was tuning into their heart, and I was just saying it's about love, like it was a feeling about love. And then for some reason I look back to the fire at Mount Gospers and it just looked at me and smiled. And my sense was that there was just a slight, an ever so slight 
reduction in the intensity. I don't know, right? I don't know. Yeah, because that's amazing. Well. Like that's mind-blowing. Yeah. But my sense is that it could be a taste of what's to come unless we shift collectively. Um, and I do feel that it's about love. We've, we, we need to return to love, to focusing on, on love. And I know there's multiple economic and people will scream about, you know, problems that result. But um, – Mm. And so those those nodes that you were talking about earlier might be a good place to like, mm. connecting with those mm. Mm. with like a loving relationship mm. with that place. Yes, I think might be a good place to start. Yeah, I think that um, if we individually walk out into our backyard, drop our energy down into the ground, we don't stop at the feet. We we have a column of spirit that goes down into the ground to the center of the earth right? If you start to recognize that and just start, start with a tree, like what we talked about before. Um, it's simple. It's just, we all have the ability, just we've kind of forgotten. And yeah, my, my sense is that, I don't know, it's like the earth's waiting for us. I saw another thing when I sat down one day to do a practice, a meditation practice, and I suddenly, as soon as we sat down, the wind blew outside and I had the feeling the rains were coming. This was in this period just after Christmas. And um, like the wind, the rains, the message that the rain was coming was coming on the wind. We did some work with the earth in that practice where we were trying to breathe with the earth, just just be with the earth and breathe with the earth because it's this whole thing, what's actually happening. I don't know what's happening. You know, if each of us act from a space of love, a lot could happen. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we were breathing with the earth and towards the end I had this flash of an Aboriginal man up between Darwin and Alice. He was to the east and he was smiling at us and I was like, oh. And then... I, there was something about this breathing with the earth. It was like waves moving through the earth and a feeling like we were part of the earth, part of the consciousness of the earth, part of the spirit of the earth. And he was, um, my sense was that he'd been part of a ceremony, a big ceremony with Aboriginal people all over Australia who had sent a wave of love to the earth and the earth was responding and was going to send a wave of love back in the form of rain. And I was like unbelievably humbled because my sense was that these people who participated in this, like I don't know if this happened in the physical, I don't know, right? But my sense was the people who participated in this were incredibly high spiritual initiates like they're real people. They understand the multiple levels of forces that operate to keep the world in balance and in harmony, and they'd done something as like an act of grace or something. They'd done something despite our ignorance, despite our greed. Maybe we've created the fires. I don't know, right? But 
despite all that, they saw the goodness of the human heart, maybe, the goodness in humanity, and they sent this wave of love. And like any being, if you send a wave of love to any being, it responds. It goes, oh, hello, I remember you, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like the earth went, oh, whew. Yeah. With this fires now, with the rain coming back, and my sense, the people have been telling me, I don't know, but this rain wasn't forecast. I don't know whether it was or not particularly, but um, the rain that's been coming, we've now had about four lots of small showers, which is a very good way for rain to come. Now it hasn't come everywhere. It's not. It hasn't come to Western New South Wales yet. It hasn't come to Barula yet. Yeah. Um. But my sense is it is coming, and and. It's because of what these people did. And I, with that, we haven't treated Aboriginal people very well in the past. And when I saw this, I just saw the, I don't know, there's some rain coming now. <laughs> A few spots. <laughs> Maybe that's your answer. <laughs> it's a sun shower. Yeah. And they say when there's a well, the American, Native American people say when there's a sun shower, it's because the spirits are happy. Maybe we're doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, that's like that's pretty incredible for you to like go on that journey of working on yourself mm. to working within organizations through mm. your research to then bringing it back to working at working with the land the environment yeah because it's like to me i've had an experience where i've seen that the earth is my love is actually it's 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 what i've incarnated for now i don't know if that's for all humanity but when i saw that it was like oh my god it's the love of my life and when i saw that i thought wow, if we get off this planet and try and end up in a, a tin can round Titan or on Mars or something, I felt like we're going to miss, completely and utterly miss the reason for our incarnation. Yeah, whatever that is. Whatever that is. Yeah. Mm. It's something to do, from what from that vision, it's something to do with our relationship, our interrelationship with the earth, spiritualization of the earth perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. They're big questions, but um, mm, that love of the earth is is something else altogether, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, it sounds like everyone's got a bit of homework to do to sort of go out into their backyard and just at the very least be thankful and send a bit of love towards... Towards the earth, there's a bit more rain now. Yeah. That is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, righto, Helen. Um, I think that's a good place to, to yep. leave things. All right, good. But, uh, I mean, thank you very much for, for doing this today. That's all right. like it's, been, it's been fantastic. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's been a good conversation. I hope we've explain things well enough because there's some very deep ideas there 
Yeah, there are. But people have their own journey and, and probably, like, people, you know, like I said, we find, we find the same... To me, the, the, all the traditions lead back to the same truths. So there's different paths up the mountain. Yeah. But... Mm. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully people can get something out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we hope. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Helen. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. And thank That's you, wonderful. everyone, for listening. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>